Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. There's nothing like a bolus of insulin to go with that spoonful of sugar I keep talking about. But what if you can't make insulin? Or what if your body can't respond to the insulin that you're making? We're going to talk about all of this in our discussion on diabetes mellitus today. In this episode, we'll compare and contrast type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We'll talk a little bit about how to diagnose the conditions. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time going over a few cases that discuss complications of the disease. As usual, I'm going to be asking lots of questions as I go through this episode. So I really hope that wherever you are, you'll take a moment to think about the answer. Pause if you need to. And if you don't know the answer, there's no need to fret. Uh, This is all a learning process, and our goal is to stay positive throughout. I think it makes sense to start by contrasting the pathogenesis and the presentation of type 1 and 2 diabetes. So let me begin by asking you, what causes type 1 diabetes mellitus? So if you remember, type 1 diabetes results from autoimmune destruction of the beta islet cells of the pancreas. And um, because of that destruction, the beta cells are no longer able to produce insulin. Do you guys remember what the antibodies are against? Specifically, there's one type of antibody that we can measure. It's an antibody against an enzyme called glutamic acid decarboxylase, or anti-GAD. And the presence of anti-GAD antibodies has been associated with type 1 diabetes. Now, a lot of times you might hear people calling type 1 diabetes, juvenile onset diabetes. Is that true? Does type 1 diabetes always occur in kids? That was definitely a leading question, and the answer is no, okay? It used to be called juvenile onset, but it can actually happen in adults as well. And you might hear a term called type 1.5 diabetes being thrown around. Um, This is also known as latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, or LADA, LADA. And it really has the same pathogenesis, okay? So they'll have positive anti-GAD, it's autoimmune destruction of the beta islet cells of the pancreas. It just shows up later. But adults can still be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, okay? Now, I did mention the antibody, but do you guys know some genes that are associated with type 1 DM? So remember, it has an HLA association. That's HLA-DR3 and HLA-DR4, okay? Um, And do you guys know what histological finding is associated with type 1 DM? So it makes sense if you think about the pathogenesis, okay? It's autoimmune destruction of the beta cells. And so if you were to take a histo sample of the pancreas, what you would see is a lymphocytic infiltrate, okay? So a bunch of lymphocytes responding to those antibodies and physically attacking the beta cells of the pancreas. Now, let's talk about presentation. How does type 1 diabetes usually present? Symptoms you'd think of are generally polydipsia, polyuria, polyphagia, even weight loss. Why do we see polydipsia in diabetes? So there's increased levels of glucose, right? And they can actually increase the serum osmolality, and that can trigger hormones that cause thirst. What about polyuria? 
So glucose actually causes osmotic diuresis, okay? And this is a little trivia. Do you guys know what levels of glucose in the blood can actually cause osmotic diuresis? It happens at over 180 milligrams per deciliter usually. Um, over 180 is when all of the glucose transporters in the kidney are kind of saturated. And so they're no longer able to reabsorb glucose. And then glucose acts as an osmotic agent pulling in water in the tubules of the kidney. What about weight loss? Why do we see weight loss? So for this, we have to dive a little bit deeper and remember what insulin does, okay? So at a molecular level, when is insulin secreted? It's secreted in response to increased glucose, right? And do you remember that oral glucose actually triggers a higher insulin response than IV glucose? Do you remember why that is? So with oral loads of glucose, there's hormones in the gut that are secreted. So incretins, such as GLP-1, GIP-1, they can actually increase the sensitivity of beta cells to insulin, okay? Other stimuli that might result in insulin secretion are beta-2 adrenergic receptors. So basically, we have either beta-2 adrenergic activity or increased oral glucose loads, and those cause in insulin secretion. When insulin binds its receptor, what type of receptor does it usually bind? So the insulin receptor is a tyrosine kinase receptor. Okay, remember it binds two alpha units on the inside and then the beta units on the inside dimerize, and that leads a whole signal cascade that we won't get into. Um, but the ultimate downstream effects of insulin are what? What does insulin do ultimately? They're usually anabolic, okay? And it makes sense. Um, we have glucose, we have nutrition, and so let's build stuff, okay? Do you guys remember the insulin-dependent glucose transporter? Which transporter is upregulated in response to insulin? So this is the GLUT4 transporters, okay? There's several glucose transporters, but GLUT4 is upregulated and expressed more in response to insulin. Do you remember where GLUT4 is found? It's found in two specific tissues, okay? Adipose and muscle, striated muscle. So think adipose and skeletal muscle. And in response to insulin, the GLUT4 transporters are upregulated there. So that increases transport into the skeletal muscle and the adipose tissue. It also increases the synthesis of glycogen. Now, if we don't have insulin, then we can actually get weight loss because there's impaired anabolic activity. We're not able to promote gluconeogenesis. We're not storing glucose in adipose and muscle tissue. And so whenever the body needs more sugar, it has to break down our fat and muscle tissues, and that can lead to weight loss. It can also contribute to polyphagia. So I realized that was a long biochemical whirlwind but the bottom line is that type 1 diabetes presents with polyuria, polyphagia, polydipsia, and weight loss, okay? And I hope that little sidetrack helps you to better understand why. Let's switch gears now and talk about type 2 diabetes, okay? So what causes type 2 DM? 
Remember, type 2 DM results from increased resistance to insulin, okay? In type 1, we had the autoimmune destruction of the beta cells. In type 2, the beta cells are producing insulin, but peripherally, the cells are resistant to that insulin, okay? And over time, to compensate for the resistance, the body can try and make more and more insulin. And so down the road, you might see failure of the beta cells and decreased insulin production, but initially the pathogenesis is from increased resistance. And now why do we get that resistance? What are risk factors for type 2 diabetes? So it's actually interesting, but type 2 diabetes has an even stronger genetic predisposition than type 1 DM. Remember we talked about the antibodies and the HLA DR3 and DR4 that are associated with type 1 diabetes? Well, there is a genetic predisposition there, but the genetics have a stronger link for type 2 diabetes. So when I learned that, I definitely thought that was surprising. And then other risk factors for type 2 diabetes are the ones that you generally think of, right? Obesity, so thinking weight gain, physical inactivity. Um, And then do you guys know what metabolic syndrome is? So metabolic syndrome is kind of syndrome of five different symptoms that we look at. They are abdominal obesity, high triglycerides, low HDLs, hypertension, and high fasting blood sugars. So a lot of individuals, especially those on, you know, an American diet can have metabolic syndrome, and that's considered a risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes. One thing that board examiners do like to ask is associated histology with type 2 diabetes. Do you guys know what you see on histo for type 2 DM? So what you actually see is amyloid deposits, okay? There's a specific amyloid called amylin or islet amyloid polypeptide. It's abbreviated IAPP. Um, Amylin is actually co-secreted with insulin from beta cells. And so in type 2 diabetes, it can actually aggregate and form amyloid fibrils. And so what you end up seeing is amyloid deposits in the pancreas on histology, which I think is really cool. So how would a patient with type 2 diabetes present? In real life, these patients are usually going to be asymptomatic, and you're just going to find that they have diabetes on routine screening, okay? But they may also present with polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. Weight loss is going to be a little more rare, again, because of those risk factors like obesity. Now, besides the pathogenesis of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, what are some other causes of diabetes or diabetes-like conditions? So acromegaly, um, remember that results from a pituitary tumor that causes excessive growth hormone secretion. Acromegaly is associated with insulin resistance um, because you have increased level of insulin-like growth factor 1 that can actually block some of the insulin receptors. Um, A similar condition, I shouldn't say a similar condition, but a similar um, pathogenesis exists in gestational diabetes, actually. There's some gestational hormones, such as human placental lactogen, estrogen, progesterone, and these can also antagonize insulin receptors, leading to uh, insulin resistance. 
And then, of course, uh, we think of glucocorticoid use because glucocorticoid definitely increases glucose levels. So these are just some other causes of diabetes to have in the back of your mind. Now, how do we go about diagnosing diabetes? So as I was hinting at earlier, for type 1 diabetes, generally a patient will come in and they'll present with certain symptoms, okay? And so that might lead you to test their blood sugar. And then, as I said earlier, type 2 diabetes usually starts with screening, okay? Because we do routine blood tests on patients as part of their physical exam, and we might find that they have an elevated glucose levels. So it's important to know the criteria for diagnosing someone with diabetes. And there's a few different values that we can use. So one of them is fasting plasma glucose levels, okay, after eight hours of fasting. Do you guys know what the cutoff is for your fasting plasma glucose? Anything equal to or greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter is considered um, diabetes, okay? Another test we can use is a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test. So you administer 75 grams of glucose in water, and two hours later measure their glucose levels. Do you know what we use for that? That would be about 200 milligrams per deciliter. So anything equal to or over 200 would hint at diabetes. We can also measure random blood glucose, and if that's over 200 and the patient has classic symptoms of hyperglycemia, then we can consider that diagnostic. And finally, everybody's favorite, the HbA1c. Do you guys know the cutoff for that in diabetes? It's 6.5%, so an A1c equal to or over 6.5% is diagnostic of diabetes. Now, what does the HbA1c tell us exactly? It is a way of measuring a person's average blood glucose levels over the past three months or so because HbA1c measures glycosylated hemoglobin and hemoglobin makes up red blood cells which have an average half-life about three months. That's what makes HbA1c such a cool measurement. We can use it not just to diagnose diabetes, but also to monitor a patient's disease progression. We can see if they're adhering to their treatment or maybe if their treatment isn't working, um, and we can make adjustments based on that. Do you guys know what normal HbA1c is considered? Normal is usually less than 5.7%, but over 6.5% is what we use to diagnose diabetes. And when we're treating a person with diabetes, we would like their goal HbA1c generally to be less than 7%. Just some numbers to keep in mind. When you measure someone's HbA1c, though, it is important to note that there are certain factors that can falsely elevate or falsely decrease HbA1c. So do you guys know some factors that might falsely elevate HbA1c? For this, you want to think of any condition that might decrease the turnover of red blood cells. So anything that prolongs red blood cell half-life, it makes sense that that would falsely elevate A1c. So conditions that decrease erythrocyte turnover include things like iron deficiency anemia, deficiency of vitamins like B12 and folate, and also um, asplenia, for example, in sickle cell disease. Now, kind of the opposite of that, what are conditions that would falsely decrease HbA1c? 
So anything that kind of dilutes or eliminates red blood cells. So for dilutional, you can think of somebody who got a lot of blood transfusions and then uh, things like chronic blood loss, for example, from hemolytic anemia. Those could also falsely decrease the HbA1c measurement. So good. Now, just to summarize the diagnosis of diabetes before we move on, uh, remember that we can measure blood glucose. It can be fasting. It can be after a 75-gram glucose load. It can be a random blood glucose. Um, so those are ways to diagnose diabetes. And then we can also use the HbA1c. And when we do measure that, it's important to keep in mind factors that might falsely elevate or falsely decrease that measurement. Let's move on now to some complications of diabetes, okay? And when we talk about the complications of diabetes, we have to understand how exactly they occur. So do you guys know the mechanisms of damage in diabetes? The first one that we need to know is osmotic damage, okay? Um, and that happens just because of the increased concentration of glucose. So glucose actually can get trapped inside of cells as sorbitol, and there are certain cells that are more susceptible to this because they lack an enzyme that converts sorbitol to fructose. So can you think of an example of a tissue that's affected by this problem? The eyes are definitely one. So in the lens, osmotic damage can lead to the formation of cataracts, and we can also get osmotic damage in tissues such as the retina, the kidney, and the nerves. And those are often the organs that we worry about in diabetics. The second mechanism, besides osmotic damage, um, whereby diabetes can cause long-term complications, is non-enzymatic glycation, okay? So in a state of chronic hyperglycemia, enzymes become glycated just because of the sheer amount of glucose that's present in the body. This can lead to basically an inflammatory process, okay? Proteins get cross-linked, there's oxidation reactions, and inflammation causes damage to important blood vessels. So we generally classify the downstream complications of blood vessels into macrovascular and microvascular. What do we mean by macrovascular damage? For macrovascular, I basically want you guys to think of atherosclerotic disease, okay? So any organs that are damaged by atherosclerosis are implicated in macrovascular complications. So think heart, brain, and limbs, okay? In the heart, we can get coronary artery disease. And do you guys remember the most common cause of death in diabetes mellitus? It's myocardial infarction. In the brain, the atherosclerosis can lead to stroke, right? Because it causes cerebrovascular disease. And in the limbs, we get peripheral vascular disease. And the end result of that can actually be gangrene. So what medication should we think about giving all diabetics to protect against atherosclerotic damage? If you're thinking of giving them a statin medication, you're absolutely right. Now, the microvascular complications, uh, the, the mechanism of the damage that happens there, do you guys know? It's more thickening of the basement membrane that surrounds the capillary, okay? So for this, think of smaller organs. For example, in the eyes, what do we see in the eyes? 
microvascular damage to retinal vessels can lead to hemorrhage, microaneurysms, and that causes retinopathy. That's why it's really important for diabetics to get yearly eye exams, okay? And sometimes the extent of capillary damage in the eyes can actually lead to new blood vessel formation. So that's known as proliferative retinopathy. Do you guys know how we treat that? So we can actually use um, anti-VEGF injections, okay? VEGF, or vascular endothelial growth factor, is the hormone that promotes vessel proliferation. And so sometimes you'll hear of diabetic patients getting injections in their eyes, and that's what they're talking about. Another small organ that you can think of that gets affected by microvascular damage is the nerves, okay? What happens in the nerves? So in the nerves, there's damage to the vasa visorum, the small vessels that supply blood to the, the nerves, and that can cause neuropathy, okay? And you'll often hear diabetics complaining of either pain or numbness and tingling or anesthesia. It really depends on the type of fiber that's affected. Um, but this is why it's important for diabetics to get foot checks. So we do something called monofilament testing and we check their sensation in their um, extremities. Now, do you guys know how we treat diabetic neuropathy? What drugs we use? So gabapentin is a drug that can be used as well as tricyclic antidepressants as a treatment for neuropathy. And now the final organ that's affected by microvascular damage, it's not exactly a small organ, but the vessels in it are very small. And this is the kidney, okay? Kidney is big in diabetes. So in the kidney, non-enzymatic glycation actually occurs preferentially. Do you guys know where? It happens more in the efferent arteriole of the kidney, okay? So that actually results in constriction of the efferent arteriole, and as a result, you get hyperfiltration in the glomerulus. Now, all the proteins that get filtered through the glomerulus then can deposit and cause glomerulosclerosis. So do you guys know the key pathfinding that's associated with diabetic nephropathy? It's the Kimmel-Steele-Wilson nodules, okay, and they represent glomerulosclerosis throughout the kidney. Now, diabetes mellitus is actually the most common cause of end-stage renal disease in the U.S., so it's really important to try and protect the kidney. Do you guys know how we can tell if there's damage to the kidney? So what we do is look for microalbuminuria, okay? The way we do that is we measure the albumin to creatinine ratio in micrograms of albumin to milligrams of creatinine, okay? So if the albumin to creatinine ratio is anywhere from 30 to 300, that signifies microalbuminuria, and it indicates kidney damage. This, the reason we use the microalbuminuria is because that small amount of protein that leaks, it's not measurable by urine dipstick analysis, but it is important to note because that's the first sign that there's end organ damage because of diabetes in the kidney. So if we see something like microalbuminuria in a patient with diabetes, is there any drug that we can give them that's kind of nephroprotective for them? Absolutely. ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers 
are both great to protect the kidney, okay? So diabetics should actually be getting ACE inhibitors or ARBs if they have hypertension or any kind of kidney damage signs, such as microalbuminuria. So when you think of complications of diabetes, uh, I want you to think of both osmotic damage as well as non-enzymatic glycation, okay? And the non-enzymatic glycation is what leads to the macrovascular and microvascular damage that you hear about. I'd like to switch gears a little and talk us through some cases now that demonstrate some common scenarios that are seen in patients with diabetes, okay? So our first case goes like this. An 11-year-old girl with a three-week history of polydipsia, polyuria, is brought to the emergency department for several hours of severe abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting, and more recently, she's also had some confusion. She's tachypnic, and she's showing intercostal retractions, and her breath has a fruity odor to it. Her labs show glucose of 400 milligrams per deciliter, bicarb of 15, and potassium of 5.6. Her urinalysis is also positive for ketones. What's her diagnosis? So the urinalysis positive for ketones, she has diabetic ketoacidosis, okay? Do you guys know what causes DKA? DKA usually happens in situations of increased insulin requirement. So think of stress like infection, trauma, alcohol consumption. We get excess fat breakdown, accumulation of free fatty acids, and ultimately ketogenesis. Um, so we get formation of ketone bodies such as beta-hydroxybutyrate or acetone in the breath. Who is more likely to get DKA? Which type of diabetic do you think? Usually DKA is seen in type 1 diabetics, okay? What happens in type 2 diabetics is that they have endogenous insulin, and that actually prevents breakdown of fat, okay? Let's talk through some of our patient's symptoms and see if we can explain why they occur, okay? So we mentioned an 11-year-old girl with a few weeks of polydipsia, polyuria. That's kind of hinting at the fact that she probably has type 1 diabetes mellitus. Why does she have abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting? Those signs are usually associated with DKA. Why do we get those? So there's electrolyte abnormalities as well as acidosis happening in DKA, and so that can lead to delayed gastric emptying and contribute to those abdominal symptoms. What about the confusion? That can definitely happen in states of severe acidosis. And then she's tachypnic. She has intercostal retractions. Why does she have that? So there's a certain type of respiration. It's called Kussmaul respirations, which are very classic in patients with DKA. And essentially, the patients are very acidotic, and so they start hyperventilating to blow off more carbon dioxide. And lastly, why does she have that fruity breath again? That would be the acetone that she's exhaling, okay? Let's take a look at some of her labs now. So I mentioned that her glucose was 400. DKA usually happens um, if the glucose is over 250, okay? Her bicarb was 15, which was indicating acidosis. And 
Again, I want to take this moment to reiterate that you should always look at the labs in the vignette. Um, look, look at the creatinine, look at the bicarb, look at the glucose, see if anything is very high or very low, and that can give you a hint about what's going on. Our final hint in the labs was the potassium. Her potassium was 5.6. Is that high? Yeah, that's high. Normal potassium is about 4, and hers was at 5.6. Why was it so high? So if you remember, one of the things that insulin does is cause an intracellular shift of potassium. So insulin can actually be used as a treatment for hyperkalemia. In DKA, if we don't have any insulin, then potassium shifts out of cells and serum potassium concentration goes up. Interestingly though, in DKA, we also have hyperglycemia and so we have a state of osmotic diuresis. So a bunch of potassium is actually lost in the urine. And that's why in DKA, although we have hyperkalemia in terms of the serum potassium, total body potassium is actually depleted because of the osmotic diuresis. Does that make sense? There's hyperkalemia because there's no insulin, so we get an extracellular shift of potassium, but total body potassium is depleted through the urine. When you get a question about DKA, looking at the lab values is key, okay? Look for acidosis, hyperglycemia, hyperkalemia, and look for ketones in the urine, okay? Now, how do we treat DKA? So the mainstay of treatment is basically insulin and fluids, okay? You give insulin and you give fluids. You start with normal saline, and then we switch to D5W when glucose normalizes, why would we do that? Why would we switch from normal saline to D5W? So initially, DKA is a state of hyperglycemia, so we don't want to give any more sugar or dextrose. So that's why we start with normal saline. But after the glucose normalizes, we're still giving insulin, and so we don't want to cause hypoglycemia. So that's why we switch to the D5W. Now, what should happen to potassium levels when we administer insulin? they should decrease because insulin drives potassium into the cells. So in terms of potassium, we basically just monitor it and see if we need to replace, okay? DKA is a little bit tricky, but once you understand what's going on, the questions become a lot easier. Let's move on to our next case now. So a 68-year-old man with type 2 diabetes is brought to the emergency department for new onset seizures. His wife states that he's been increasingly lethargic over the last few days, and when you examine him, his mucous membranes are dry, he has decreased skin turgor, his labs show a glucose of 700 milligrams per deciliter, and his serum osmolality is 330 milliosmoles per kilogram. His arterial blood gas shows a pH of 4.0, and his urinalysis is negative for ketones. What's the diagnosis in this gentleman? So this patient has what is called a hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, or HHS, okay? Do you guys know what causes HHS? It's the same sort of triggers as diabetes mellitus, so stress, infection, trauma, but it can also be caused by a poor diet as well as decreased water intake. Think of decreased water intake as happening in elderly individuals. 
um, who may not necessarily be as good as regulating that. So who gets HHS? What type of diabetic, I should say? So this guy had type 2 diabetes, and usually it's type 2 diabetics who are not eating well or drinking enough water who end up with HHS. In terms of his symptoms, this gentleman presented with seizures. Why does he have seizures? So the seizures are associated with hyperosmolality. And in HHS, we often see focal neurological deficits, seizures, mental status changes, and this can progress to coma and even death. It's important to note that in HHS, the neuro findings are usually more prominent versus DKA. Okay, And you'll also note that in HHS, we don't usually get the abdominal symptoms like we did in DKA. And in this vignette, I also said that this patient had dry mucous membranes, decreased skin turgor. What is that indicating? It's indicating that he's dehydrated, okay? And that is a result of the hyperosmolality, all right? In terms of this patient's labs, is he acidotic? No, he's not. And why not? So remember, HHS usually happens in type 2 diabetics who have insulin, and so insulin prevents ketogenesis from happening. This patient's serum osmolality was 330. Do you guys know what normal osmolality is usually? Usually 275 to 295, and so this patient is hyperosmolar for sure. What's osmolality in DKA? Usually normal, okay? And do you guys know how we treat HHS? Similar to DKA, we give insulin and we replace fluids and electrolytes, okay? So in these two cases, I just wanted to juxtapose the differences between DKA and HHS. Remember that in DKA, we also see abdominal symptoms Glucose levels are usually over 250. In HHS, it's more prevalent neurosymptoms, and the glucose levels are a lot higher, usually over 600. That, I think, was the hardest thing I wanted to go over. Let's wrap up with a few last cases, okay? So our third case is a 44-year-old man who presents with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, headache, and he also has facial pain. On physical exam, you see a black necrotic eschar on his nares and his palate. What's his most likely diagnosis? So this is mucormycosis, okay? It's a fungal infection that can happen due to infection with either mucor or rhizopus species. And infection is most common in patients with not only diabetes, but also one other condition. Can you think of that? Neutropenics, okay? So you want to think of mucormycosis happening in diabetics and neutropenics. Now, if we were to biopsy that S-char, what would we see? We'd see broad, non-septate hyphae branching at wide angles, okay? It's important to be familiar with the structure of the fungi. So mucor are broad, non-septate, and they branch at wide angles, all right? What's the treatment for mucormycosis? So the first thing you want to think of is surgical debridement, all right? Anytime you have necrotic tissue, you got to debride that surgically. In addition, what antibiotic would we give? Amphotericin B, all right? 
So it's important to note that just in general, diabetics are at increased risk of infection. And do you know why? So in diabetics, a hyperglycemic environment can actually cause damage to immune cells such as neutrophils. And so in general, you should think of them at increased risk of infection. Now, the next few things, they're not really cases, but I just want to talk about why certain complications happen in diabetics, all right? So I said this a little bit before, but diabetics are really susceptible to foot ulcers. And why is that? So they have neuropathy, remember? Um, and they actually lose sensation to their extremities. So they might get an infection on that foot ulcer, and if it's really bad, it can erode all the way to the bone and cause gangrene, osteomyelitis, and that necessitates an amputation. Similarly, you might also hear of diabetics getting Fournier's gangrene, which is the same process happening in the perineal region. You might get asked a question about diabetes. They'll show you a picture of a very deformed foot. The patient might have mild pain. They might have swelling. Their x-ray would show perhaps collapsing of the arch or osteophytes, bony destruction. What is this called? This is a Charcot joint. Okay, and Charcot joint also happens due to neuropathy. Impaired sensation leads to abnormal weight bearing and trauma when patients walk, and that actually triggers an inflammatory reaction that basically leads to a swollen, misshaped foot. All right. Now, the last case I have for you, it's an actual case. So a 30-year-old man who takes insulin injections for type 1 diabetes comes in reporting palpitations, anxiety, and numbness and tingling in his extremities about five hours after his last meal. He's diaphoretic, and he appears tremulous, confused. What's his diagnosis? So this patient, who is coming in with palpitations, anxiety, tremulousness, five hours after his last meal, is probably experiencing hypoglycemia, all right? So hypoglycemia is generally divided into two different types of symptoms. We have neurogenic symptoms and neuroglycopenic symptoms. So the neurogenic symptoms are caused by release of catecholamines, all right? That's what leads to the tremulousness, palpitations, anxiety. We also get release of acetylcholine, which causes the diaphoresis, paresthesias, hunger, all right? So when you think neurogenic, think of those hormones, the catecholamines, and the acetylcholine. The neuroglycopenic symptoms are kind of what it sounds like if you break down that word. So there's a shortage of glucose in the brain. That leads to the dizziness, weakness, confusion, visual disturbance. It can even get serious and lead to stupor and seizures, all right? So this is a classic presentation of a patient with hypoglycemia. How do we treat hypoglycemia? You want to administer a fast-acting carbohydrate, all right? So glucose tablets, sweetened juice. In the medical setting, you can even just give IV glucose. If they're unconscious, you would give them a glucagon injection, all right? And in type 1 diabetics, you actually want to supply them with a glucagon kit in case they get hypoglycemia so they can get that injection. That finally brings us to the end of our talk on diabetes mellitus, okay? We compared the pathogenesis and presentation of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. 
we talked about criteria for diagnosing diabetes, and then we went over several complications. So remember osmotic damage versus non-enzymatic glycation, and then remember presentations of common complications. So DKA, HHS, mucormycosis, gangrene, Charcot joints, and also be able to recognize a vignette that's talking about hypoglycemia. Diabetes is an extremely common condition and it has very broad implications in terms of patient health, okay? So the pathology is very interesting. The complications such as DKA, HHS, they're very common in hospitals. And so it's really crucial to know it well, okay? I hope that was a helpful review to help solidify your understanding of diabetes and kind of tie some strings together. If anything we talked about here was confusing, if you have any other questions, comments, concerns, please visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and you can post those under uh, the comment section for this episode. Thank you so much for your time. If you enjoyed this episode and others, I hope you'll subscribe and continue to tune in. Remember that there's a sweet solution to any SOS moments you might have while studying. And that spoonful of sugar, our podcast to help the medicine go down.